Is that better? I think that's better. Is that better, Mr. Boston? This is fifty percent. He doesn't want a prediction. Oh. All right. Yeah, but this was already on when I came in. He has set it up. What? Is this ever loud? So, hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming on such a kind of miserable looking day. Um, so, uh, my subject today is about the most important event, I would say, that's affecting us, the world, today, continuing on from last year, 2022. And uh, President Biden made a speech today in the United Nations talking about the Ukraine war. And I think it's worth it's worth our while to sort of catch up on this subject because it's the kind of thing that um, nowadays affects everybody. In, in, in this day and age, in this day and age, it's impossible to have a local conflict without that conflict having much greater effect on the rest of the world. And that's really for two reasons. One reason is, is that one reason is that um, uh, no matter what, uh, a conflict like that draws in uh, supporters and opponents from all sides. And then what happens is, is that the conflict, that small conflict, serves as a pivot for greater powers to try to uh, influence and to uh, get other support from other sides. And before you know it, just as happened in World War I and World War II, uh, this local conflict turns into a world conflict one way or another. Now, we're not at the point, obviously, where the world is fighting each other over this particular issue. But that um, it's inevitable that if there's tensions around the world, these tensions will polarize themselves. It's like it's like uh, you know flies being drawn to a light on uh, two different lights, and flies are drawn to one side, and flies are drawn to the other side, and then before you know it, uh, this conflict has such big um, international effects. And if you don't think that this conflict has had an effect on the rest of the world, well, just think about all the different things that have happened as a result of this conflict. So that's why it's important to try to figure out what's going on and you know, why did it happen and where is it going. So that's really the subject of the, of the class. So there's a few important things to understand. 
since I have this beautiful board here, we can draw a nice part of the picture. Um, <clears throat> nice kind of picture of it. So let's pretend that this is the Ukraine over here. Let's pretend this is the Black Sea down at the bottom. And then up on top is Belarus. And then on this side is Russia. And the other neighbors they have down here would be Romania. And then on the very far end of it would be Hungary. You could see. And so it's a country kind of in the middle um, of Eastern Europe. And it has um, approximately the same number of people or it did as Canada had, somewhere around 40 million people. Um, the Ukraine as a country never existed before the 20th century. The place was always there. The people were always there. The language has been there for a very long time. But as an independent country, it's a modern creation. So what was it before? What you know, just a bit of a thumbnail sketch of history um, of the Ukraine or the people that are living there. And um, it was it's a country that has really no natural borders. So in other words, there's no mountain chains that protects it. Uh, yes, there is the, the Black Sea on the south, but all around the Ukraine, it's just plain pretty flat. It merges from one part to another, from one part to another, from one part to another. And so um, lots of people have passed around and through it. The sort of, we'll call it the beginnings of the Russian people, the beginnings of Russia itself really started in the Ukraine and not in Russia. And that's why the sort of area that this was once called was called Kievian Rus. So in other words, the Russia around Kiev. Kiev is the capital around here. We used to call it Kiev, you know, now uh, that's the Russian pronunciation. Uh, now it's Kiev, which is the Ukrainian pronunciation. But somewhere around a thousand, not around 900 AD, Christianity came to this area. So beforehand, there were um, Slavic peoples that moved here. Um, there was an incursion from the Vikings that came down from the north. Um, but before, before this sort of territory was organized, became part of Christianity, it didn't have any kind of separate people or separate identity or separate identity. Christianity, as I said, came from the monks sent by the Greeks across the Black Sea, came up here, uh, introduced Christianity, 
also introduced the Cyrillic alphabet. The Cyrillic alphabet is the alphabet that Russian is written in, Bulgarian is written in, Serbian is written in, um, and Ukrainian is written in. So they all share this kind of common Orthodox background, Orthodox, Orthodox Christian background. And um, that's when the state started to take hold. The major powers that ruled the Ukraine uh, were uh, mainly the Poles. So Poland is the next biggest neighbor over here. And Poland at one time um, ruled all of the Ukraine. And then Poles and Lithuanians together, they formed a, a union, the United States. And the Poles and Lithuanians together um, controlled most of the Ukraine. Now, first important thing to understand that the Poles were Catholics and the Ukrainians were mainly Orthodox. So when Poland controlled the Ukraine, they introduced to Catholicism to the Ukraine. And some of the Ukrainians, especially in the west part of the country, converted into Catholicism. And that tension between the two groups, between the two religions, was there, you know, as part of, uh, of Ukrainian history from then uh, until, you know, the 20th century. Uh, Jews came to live in Ukraine uh, as part of the drift moving from the west to the east. The king of Poland invited the Jews to come live there uh, and build up their, build up his state. Contribute to his uh, well-being, and uh, the Jews who were uh, treated to uh, crusades from um, thousand to twelve hundred in Western Europe decided to leave Germany and leave France, and uh, taking with them the Yiddish language, which was developed around that same year a thousand, just moved eastward into. Czechoslovakia, into Hungary, and into Ukraine. But when the Jews settled down there, they played a very important role. The important role that they played was that they were the sort of middleman or the agents between the Polish landlords who owned most of the land and the Ukrainian peasants who were the workers. Uh, so the Jews ended up settling in all kinds of little small towns, you know, called shtetls. And their job there was to sometimes be the tax collector for the Polish landlords, to be the operators of the pubs uh, and the distilleries that made the liquor. And uh, they weren't farmers themselves, they weren't allowed to own land there, but they did all these other jobs that were needed by the uh, you know, the masses of the Ukrainians to, uh, to, to, to live. They, they supplied the state. They, you know, clothing, hardware supplies, seeds, uh, fertilizers, and all that kind of thing that they needed for a rural lifestyle because there weren't any huge cities at the time in the Ukraine. There were cities, but nothing really big, nothing, nothing so big. Um, 
there was a period of rebellion against the Polish overlords by uh, a man named Chmielbitsky, who is uh, today regarded as Ukrainian hero. He was the one who said that Ukrainians are a people of their own. They're not just some kind of subset of Russia, or they're not Poles. And, you know, for a brief time, he sort of created a kind of a, an autonomous Ukrainian, it wasn't a state, but a kind of a, sort of a province or principality. Uh, the Cossacks were people who were of Ukrainian origin, and these were the military, the military, uh, military support uh, that Khmelnytsky led. And today, this guy Khmelnytsky, his statues are all over the place in Ukraine, and it is considered to be the first Ukrainian painting. Of course, he massacred thousands and thousands of Jews in Ukraine. And anybody who studies Jewish history in elementary school or high school, like I did, was told that Khmelnytsky was like, uh, you know, the first Hitler. And, uh, uh, you know, but in the Ukraine, he's not regarded like that at all. He's regarded as a great patriot and then sort of the forerunner of Ukrainian independence. It just goes to show, you know, how different people look at different things. Uh, in the 1700s, the Russian state grew very strong. Uh, Peter the Great and Catherine uh, expanded their territories east, west, north, and south. And they ended up taking over the Ukraine from the Poles. And um, uh, in fact, by the end of the 1700s, Poland itself was taken over by Russia, Prussia, and Austria. So this was sort of Russia's great expansion to the West, taking over not over the Ukraine, not only the Ukraine, but also Poland itself. Um, as part of the partition of Poland. And that's when Russia as a state inherited these millions of Jews who were living in the Ukraine and in Poland. So in Russia itself, in other words, Moscow, uh, Nizhny Novgorod, Rostov, uh, Smolensk, I mean, all the major cities in Russia itself, Jews were living there I mean, Hanzians were living there in the 1800s, hardly any. But when they took over these territories from Poland, that's where they inherited all these Jews, and that's where the Pale of Settlement was established to say Jews could only live here, in Belarus, in the Ukraine, in Poland, and very few, except the very wealthy, well-connected, or business people could actually live in Moscow or you know, places further east. Um, so, um, the communists, you know, established their revolution in 1917. Uh, they took over the whole country. And what did the communists do to win support of the people who they ruled over? Remember that the communist revolution was not something that was supported by masses of people in, in Russia. It was a kind of a, we'll call it a well-organized revolution 
led by um, uh, an organized and educated uh, group of people, um, but they didn't have the support of the whole country. And in fact, the communist revolution in a certain way lasted mainly until 1923. From 1917 to 1923 was the time that they defeated the very last um, opponents of that revolution. And in order to create support for their revolution, and in order to differentiate themselves from the czarist regime, which went before them, they had this idea of saying, we will recognize the individual nations that make up Russia, the individual ethnic groups, the individual language groups. We will recognize them. We will support them. We will support their cultures in order to say that the Soviet Union is a union of all kinds of different people living in that same country. That was their idea. Russia never had that idea. Russia had the idea of imposing Russian culture, Russian language, uh, the Orthodox Church over the whole country. The conflicts that the Russians had were mostly, like I said, in the West, between the Orthodox Church and the Catholics, but uh, their idea was to Russianize everybody that they possibly could. So in order to distinguish themselves from that, this when the Soviets took over, when the communists took over in 1917, they said, we're not going to be so heavy-handed and impose Russian on everybody. And so they were the ones who created the so-called Soviet Union, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. USSR. So what were these republics? They created them kind of out of, I won't say out of nothing, but they created new entities that existed before um, in certain cases and never existed before in other cases. So one of these entities that they created was Ukraine, right there. Ukraine. It became one of the 16 Soviet Socialist Republics, along with Belarus, another invention, we'll call it. So that was another one right over here, Belarus. Um, and then the other republics were the Asian republics, the Muslim republics in Asia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, um, Kyrgyzstan, and then you have the Caucasus republics, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. And Russia itself was a republic. So Russia had this kind of dual role as being a republic as part of the Soviet Union, but also the most important and largest in size, and largest in population republic, um, whose capital city, Moscow, was also the capital of the whole Soviet Union. The capital of Ukraine was Kiev, the capital of Belarus is Minsk, and um, that's how they got the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Now, um, Stalin, who really was the 
foremost leader of that country from 1924 to 1953. So for 30 years, he had, he had um, uh, uh, a kind of a... He, he had a special strategy in creating these republics. And he wanted to make sure that there were minorities in different republics of the adjacent majority. So what he wanted to do is to make sure there would be no separatist movements going around in the Soviet Union. So how he did it was he made sure, for example, we'll talk about it maybe later on, and in Azerbaijan, there would be a big Armenian minority. In Uzbekistan, there would be a big Kyrgyz minority. In Kazakhstan, there would be a big Russian minority. So he made sure that were, by drawing the boundaries in certain ways, that there would be big minorities in every republic to make sure that there wouldn't be a kind of a separatist movement in each republic. Now, the other thing that he found, that, that so when communism took over, in the Soviet Union, and in Ukraine in particular, the biggest opponents of this system were who? Who do you think were the biggest opponents of communism in the first 10, 15 odd years as a group of people? Exactly. Very good answer. The correct answer. The people who hold problems. You know, the communist system said all properties owned by the state. But, you know, before they arrived, all the property was owned by the, you know, by, by the landowners. Now, you know, these landowners were asked to give up their land, in essence, without much compensation. In fact, their land was speaking from that without compensation. So these land, these people, what happened to them was either they were killed or they were exiled from their own land and sent someplace else. So they couldn't marshal local people to, to rebel against the communists. Um, in Ukraine, the opposition was particularly strong to this collectivization, uh, this collectivization campaign that was imposed by the Soviet Union, again, not right away, because they wanted to make sure that their revolution would succeed. But over time, within the first 10 years, gradually they took away all the land from the landowners, and they turned them into sort of communal-type farms causes that had a few different names for them, but they were essentially state-owned farms where the peasants who were working there before became employees of the state. Um, and then the state said, said well, they sent uh, uh, administrators to tell the farmers what to plant and how much to produce. Um, in the 1920s and the 30s, especially, there were some bad harvests, there was depression, and Stalin's idea was to make sure that Moscow 
um, and the other Russian cities were well fed. And what he did was he increased the quotas that the Ukrainians had to produce in order to feed Russia. The Ukraine is called the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. It used to be called that. The land is so fertile. The land is so easy to work. The climate is, is half decent. And it was the biggest wheat producer in, in the Soviet Union. So the agents of the Soviet uh, Union took away all the product production that the Ukrainians had and sent it into Russia itself, leaving a fan to take place in the Ukraine, which lasted about 10 years. Now, some people say that this famine was introduced on purpose by Stalin in order to subdue the Ukrainians and to subdue any Ukrainian national feeling. So that's one theory. The other theory is simply that um, uh, the other theory is that it wasn't done in a sort of specifically anti-Ukrainian way. It's just that. Russia needed food, and where the food was was the Ukraine, and that's where they bought it. So, you know, there are two shades of the different, two shades of the same, of the same uh, events, call it like that. Um, in any effect, in, in any case, it took uh, the, so the communists about 10 years to completely consolidate their rule, uh, which they did, uh, by brutally either killing or exiling all their employees. So that didn't, uh, you know, that that uh, that sort of brutality is, has quick results as we've seen in many places in the world. And um, all opposition to communist rule, pretty well tyrant, pretty well everybody was started by the end of the 20s, because Stalin took over in the early 20s, and his brutality more or less you know, uh, uh, defeated all his opponents. People that he didn't like, especially people who he didn't like, he dealt with them as a group. So, for example, we're going to talk now about the Ukraine. So, um, uh, well, I could jump ahead a little bit uh, to the Second World War. Um, but, um, yeah, so let's talk about that. So when the Second World War came in, in 1939, um, the Hitler and the Soviets signed a treaty. The treaties didn't say we're going to go to war with you. On the contrary, what the treaty said was, we are going to redivide Poland, Poland which didn't exist as a country since 1795. It was recreated after it was recreated or reestablished after the First World War, when um, when um, Austria and Prussia lost the war. One of the results was they created all these new countries like Czechoslovakia and Poland on territories that formerly were ruled by Austria and by Germany, and so Poland was recreated as a state in 1918. In 1939, 20 years later, Stalin and Hitler said, you know what, let's divide Poland up among ourselves again. 
You take half and we'll take half. Stalin said, great. He signed the treaty in 1939. I have a phone I can do. No one ever calls me. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so uh, he uh, signed this agreement, and Stalin figured, great, you know, hey, you know, uh, I don't care if he's a dictator, I don't care if he's anti-Semitic, um, you know, I'm getting half the And uh, they, they, they did do that. So the Soviets didn't move into the Eastern Department. But in 1941, for reasons which are completely unexplainable, Hitler decided to conquer Russia. Um, now, one of the reasons why he embarked on this uh, campaign was to reach oil um, reserves that were in uh, Iraq, which you would have to get to via Russia, uh, because there weren't, you know, he was already at war against Western Europe for two years. Germany had no oil reserves in its own. Uh, Romania had some oil, but not enough. And where was the next closest oil that he could get his hands on? Or is he in Iraq, which he would have to get from by going around here and coming down that way. And so he went ahead, invaded Russia. Before he got to Russia, of course, he came into the Ukraine. Now, in the Ukraine, um, there were people who said, you know what, this is our chance to establish our independence from the Soviet Union. There were Ukrainians who never wanted the Soviets, who never wanted the communists, who never wanted the Russians ruling over them. They said, here's our chance. If we help Germany, then after the war is over, we can have an independent country. And so there was a group of people, especially in the western part of the Ukraine, especially in the Catholic part of the Ukraine, especially in the Ukrainian-speaking part of the Ukraine. Some of those people sided with him and joined his uh, brigades that he created for them. And their first job was to kill all the Jews that they found. So they they were responsible for killing the Vladimirian Jews in especially in the western part of the Ukraine. There was another group of people who were crazy about this um, new Soviet regime. And these people were living in the Crimean Peninsula, who were Muslims, who were called Tatars. Uh, they were the ones who originally ruled all of the Crimean Peninsula and all of southern Russia. And that was the second group. Um, so uh, in the middle, so of course Russia resisted very heroically this German invasion. Uh, it cost uh, uh, the Soviet Union 27 million people who were killed in the war. Um, they, uh, the, the Germans got through the Ukraine, through the Ukraine and all the way into Russia, far east as far as Stalingrad, which is on the Volga River. So they penetrated that far. In the north, 
they came up and surrounded um, Leningrad, which is the second biggest city in the country. Uh, they got kind of close to Moscow, but not, not right in Moscow. And that's as far east as the, as the Germans got. And, uh, you know, uh, they were pushed back by the uh, Russians starting in 1940. Well, they were always fighting, but the pushing back started in 1943, uh, which was, of course, long before the Americans ever got into the European theater, which they came in only in June 1944. So for two, so for three years, from 41 to 44, the Soviets alone were the ones who were fighting the Germans on European soil. Um, so the war finishes, of course. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Russians uh, push the Germans back. They march into Berlin. Um, and uh, in the meantime, the Russians took over the three Baltic republics up there, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which were independent between the two wars, and made them part of the Soviet Union also. That was one of their gains. They, they made a few gains, but that was one of them. Meanwhile, these poor tyrants who were down here, Stalin took an extreme dislike to them, and he exiled more than three-quarters of them out to Siberia as, as a group. It just got rounded up and sent off because he didn't like it. The people he did like were Georgians. Georgia was where he was born. He himself was a Georgian or half Georgian. And the Georgian Republic, it's not here, so this side over here, always had favorable, always treated with a light hand by Stalin. In other words, he didn't go after the landowners too carefully. He allowed them to. Uh, produce wine and alcohol and sort of ship it to all the rest of the Soviet Union. Even the Jewish community of Georgia were not like pressed down like that, or synagogues being closed and rabbis being arrested. Everyone was treated pretty lightly there because, you know, that's the people he liked. He didn't like Ukrainians, that's for sure. So, um, uh, you know, they they uh, were the ones who, uh, in a way, were the brunt of the fighting in the Second World War. Um, the uh, leaders of the brief Ukrainian independence movement were all arrested and hanged, and uh, or they escaped to uh, the West after the Second World War. So the United Nations gets formed at the end of the war. Now, now Russia and now the Soviet Union have moved in as far as Germany, right? So all the Eastern republics of, the, of Europe, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Yugoslavia, all came under Soviet domination, including East Germany, this new country. And at the United Nations, um, part of the deal was, and believe it or not, that the Soviet Union demanded that Ukraine be considered an independent country and Belarus be considered an independent country. And those three play, those three countries together, Russia, uh, no, we'll say the Soviet Union, Belarus, and Ukraine, each got seats in the United Nations in the General Assembly. 
So it was in a certain sense the Soviet Union that created this so-called fiction of an independent Ukraine, which later became an independent Ukraine once the Soviet Union collapsed. So fast forward to 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. All the 16 republics eventually declare independence from, from Russia, from the Soviet Union. The last ones to hang in there were Ukraine and Belarus, because they were the ones that felt closest culturally, linguistically, religiously to Russia itself. So Russia wanted to try to make a kind of a trio uh, of, of these three countries together, and um, it, 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 it didn't last. It didn't last because, um, you know, the, the sort of, uh, if all the other countries are leaving and becoming independent, you know, why should Belarus and Ukraine stay with Russia? So they also split up. So that's, that's how the Ukraine became an independent country. Its only independence came in 1991. So it never was an independent place before that, um, you know, despite a thousand years of history. So <clears throat> Ukraine becomes independent, along with all those other republics. And it sets about starting its own life, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, heavily influenced by Russia. They had a bunch of elections. They had a bunch of corrupt leaders who took over one after another. Um, they always played this dance, this very kind of dance of trying to stay on the good side of Russia on one hand and to open up ties with the West on the other. And this was the fundamental crisis or the fundamental um, conflict that um, engaged Ukraine for the time of its independence. Who should we go to? Who should we rely on? Russia or the West? Now, one thing that's important to understand is that the Ukraine as it was, not as it is now, but as it was, was one-third Russian-speaking, okay? It was one-third Russian-speaking. Um, this map is a little bit cockeyed, but this is a This Crimea is a little bit. So one-third Russian-speaking, about one-third mixed, and about one-third Ukrainian-speaking sort of, you know, on the western side. Kiev, the capital city, was more Russian-speaking than Ukrainian-speaking. Um, and um, uh, in elections that were held, in democratic elections that were held, the Russian-speaking areas of the country, which are called the Donbass, which is the industrial heartland the steel producing part of Russia, of the Ukraine, the coal mining part of the Ukraine. The part of the Ukraine that was most industrialized was here, in this area over here. So uh, Kharkiv, the second biggest city in the Ukraine is here. And all the other uh, steel producing areas are down over there. 
Um, one thing that happened that was notable, after Stalin died, who took over after Stalin died? Right, Khrushchev. In 1954, a year after Stalin died, Khrushchev made a kind of a bizarre decision. And the decision was to give the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukraine, to make the Crimean part of the Ukraine, which it never was before. The people who lived in Crimea were Russian-speaking in the main, with a minority of Tartars who were still left over there from the olden days, and a mixture of all kinds of other uh, dreams and drafts, Greek people, Jewish people, and even the Karaite sect of Judaism, they all had a presence there in the Crimean Peninsula in the olden days. Why did Khrushchev want to give Crimea to Ukraine? It's still a bit of a mystery. The official reason was it was to mark 300 years of union between Ukraine and Russia. But uh, like I said, Ukraine was never independent, so there was no union. But 300 years ago, Khmelnytsky was in 1650, so he's the one who created this kind of semi-independent uh, region, and uh, it was united with Russia at that time. So he gave, he, there was never a referendum, there was never, you know, local consultation, obviously, but the, the Crimea became part of um, uh, the Ukraine. But remember, all of this was dominated by Moscow. So even though there were 16 republics, there weren't. But all of them were run from Moscow through the agents sent from Moscow into different places to run the place. These had there was no elections, there was no local leadership, there was picked by the people, it was a communist dictatorship. So it didn't much matter if Ukraine or if Crimea belonged to Russia or to Ukraine, it was all, all the same country anyway. Right? Um, so independence comes, and the more Russia tried to push on the Ukraine, uh, the more Ukraine decided that they wanted to be more aligned with the West. And this is what led to um, this is what led to the first Ukraine-Russia war. So it happened in 2014. In 2014, Ukraine signed an agreement with the European Union saying, we want to be part of the European Union. Russia took that as a tremendous threat. Uh, Russia then, in the same year, occupied the Crimean Peninsula and took over these territories right on the border with Russia, the Russian-speaking part. What the Russians did was they encouraged local volunteers to rebel against Ukraine, but these local volunteers were actually Russians wearing fake uniforms uh, as if to be as if to be local people, but they were Russian troops. And they're the ones who took over this territory over here. So from 2014 to 2022, Russia has taken part of the Ukraine. 
And there was a kind of a cold war between the two sides um, and a boundary over here. And um, uh, there was always bits of fighting going on here and there. But they came to a stalemate, and that was the end of that. In 2022, February, um, Mr. Putin decided to invade the Ukraine altogether to go from Belarus down to Kiev and to go from these territories that he already controlled to go west to try to capture uh, the rest of Ukraine. Why? What's like, what was the whole, what was the point of it? What was his reason for doing it? What did he say was his reason? Apart from that. Nazis. To get rid of Nazis in the Ukraine. What Nazis are were in the Ukraine? There weren't any Nazis in the Ukraine. That was his first negative. I mean, his explanations were so unbelievable that it was just a pure um, uh, attempt uh, by Putin to say, you know what, uh, maybe I can get away with this. Um, uh, maybe the world isn't watching. The Ukrainians have no force whatsoever. We're so much stronger than them. We're just going to take them over, and that will be that. We've already taken over part of the Ukraine, and nobody said anything. So we might as well take the rest. Yeah. No, they, they didn't try. Like I said, what they did was they said that they were interested in, first of all, joining the European Union, or they were interested in applying to join the European Union. That's It takes a lot of steps to make it to, to get that far. Uh, and yes, they also said that they were interested in maybe not joining NATO, but somehow... Um, uh, you know, having more um, Western influence in the country. They knew that if they said we want to join NATO, that Russia would be completely, you know, bowled over by that. So they never outwardly said we're joining NATO. But what they said is we want to get closer to the West, to Western Europe, because Western Europe was a big economic uh, engine. And Russia wasn't. Uh, so that was the thinking, that was the thinking of the Western leading politicians in the Ukraine at the time. And they did have democratic elections, and the Western leading party won the elections. And it wasn't Mr. Zelensky, uh, you know, first it was uh, Mr. Poroshenko, who was uh, there in 2014. And that was that. So they panicked, Russia panicked, and that's what the result was. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Zelensky took over the government in another free election where the, um, the uh, dissatisfaction with the incompetence and corruption of the Ukrainian leadership was so great that the people voted for somebody who wasn't a politician, who didn't have a political background, who didn't have a seat in parliament, who um, was an outsider, who was, as you know, an actor who played a president in the movie. 
And pretty well, that was his only qualification. But he wasn't any of the others. So that's why they let me. And then, that, and, you know, um, uh, Russia probably thought, well, this guy doesn't know anything. So if we invade, he's not going to be able to do anything against us. And um, so it is probably, you know, every war starts with some reason. The reason could be fabricated. It could be minor. The First World War started when the Archduke uh, Ferdinand was assassinated by a Serbian nationalist. The Vietnam War started when the Americans invented a fiction of fictitious attack on one of the abortions in the Gulf of Tonkin. But they usually have some explanation as, as, as flimsy as it is. But there wasn't even a flimsy explanation to this uh, invasion. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good logical explanation. Um, he is welcome. He had already been in power for 10 odd years, and, uh, and he was wearing out his Volta. Let's put it like that. Um, Russia um, did experience a huge growth in their um, capital income and their prosperity from the bottom after the Soviet Union collapsed. The 1990s were a terrible time in the Soviet Union. Everything fell apart. And um, there was no real plan. There was no uh, idea of how to remake Russia into a modern sort of Western country. Uh, things just happened on their own. As you know, all these autocrats and oligarchs ended up stealing the property of the state and making it their own and becoming rich as a result of that. Boris Yeltsin, the first prime minister, was an incompetent uh, drug. And Putin uh, ended up taking over somewhere around 2000, put some order into the country, and you know, then the economy grew tremendously. Um, Russia has huge uh, natural resources, as you all know, uh, oil and gas especially, whose price, you know, uh, has gone up so much in the you know, since 2000. And he was able to take that money and distribute it out among the people in pensions and other advantages. And the West, again, moved into Russia saying, well, if they're growing, we'll make investments in this country and open up all kinds of stores and, and, and things like that. Um, and so there was prosperity in the first uh, 10 years of Putin's rule. Um, but after that, you know, things naturally have a tendency to slow down, and COVID was definitely a factor in that. 
Russia had a very incompetent um, uh, plan to attack COVID. If you might recall, they refused to take Western uh, vaccinations and they made up their own vaccine, which nobody trusted, so nobody took it. And, um, and a lot of people died. And of course, the economy shut down because no travel, no tourism, no, you know, it was part of the worldwide recession. And, you know, here's Putin with this great idea of, of, of let's, let's divert the people's attention and invade the world. So, what has happened since that invasion? Well, we don't have accurate statistics. It's hard, nobody really knows how many the people were lost uh, on both sides. Somewhere around half a million casualties and deaths on the Russian side. On the Ukrainian side, remember that they were uh, invaded from the north, they were invaded from the uh, east. There were all kinds of, uh, of uh, atrocities committed against civilians by the Russian soldiers. Uh, the United Nations uh, World Court has investigated these things and they say, look, if we find these people, they've committed war crimes. They bombed the, all the major cities that they could get their hands on. Uh, the Ukraine didn't have an air force. The Russian, you know, dominated the skies. They could do whatever they wanted. But shock of shocks, um, through their incompetence, the Russians were stopped. The Russians were stopped and were pushed back completely out of northern Ukraine on this side. And they were held to their lines on this side. And they did capture what they call the one provincial capital, they're sort of down over here. And they sort of ran out of gas. Um, the, they, the Russians thought that in a week, Kiev would fall, they would install a pro-Russian, uh, you know, dictator or pro-Russian leader, and the pro-Russian leader would say, okay, we're lucky that Putin came to our rescue, and, you know, now we'll move back into the Russian orbit, and that would be that. But, you know, against all odds, Zelensky mobilized the country, to fight. Uh, pretty quickly, Western Europe realized that this is a kind of a existential war, that if Ukraine falls, then, you know, this next step will be going to uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, and who knows where else. And they came up with aid pretty quickly. Uh, all of the munitions were sitting around in warehouses since the Second World War. You know, old bombs, all the artillery pieces, all, all that old junk. They Somebody said, okay, you, you know, go into this warehouse and take all the crap that was there for 40 years and let's send it to the Ukraine. So that was the first thing they did, you know, clear out all the all of old munitions. And then uh, as the Ukrainians proved strong against the Russians, then people said, you know what, we better start taking this seriously and sending the Ukraine more modern weapons and more effective weapons. And uh, around the world, the West has spent billions and billions of dollars in supporting the Ukraine. But one of the results of the war is that somewhere around a fifth of the Ukrainian population left the country. 
especially women and families. Um, and the men were not allowed to leave. Men over, I think, age 20 or something like that, from 20 to 50, 20 to 40, I don't remember which, but the men were not allowed to leave, but women didn't leave with their families. And amazingly enough, they were welcomed in all the countries that they went to. They went to Poland, especially, some went to Hungary, some went to uh, this small border over here. Slovakia, they bring this down. But between Hungary and Poland, Slovakia is further down this way. Uh, they went to Romania. You know, they came to the United States, they came to Canada, they came to Israel. Wherever they could get themselves out when they had convictions, they came. And they were well received because. They were legitimate refugees. They weren't out there looking to sponge off the economies. They were really forced out of their homes. And that's the situation until today. In Russia, in Russia, the um, results were, of course, that there was a lot of people who opposed the war in Russia. They said, this is a crazy idea. But these were the same people who were liberal opponents of Putin. And he just gradually closed the vice and said, anybody who's against the war or against me is a traitor to the country and will be arrested. And they arrested some people. And uh, that caused a flight of uh, somewhere around half a million people left Russia to go live elsewhere. These were all people who were you know, middle class, people educated, people in the arts, people in uh, universities. Um, that whole class of people, if they had a conscience and if they had ties to the rest of the world, they left the country and went to live in some places. I mean, one of the quick results was the Western world employs a boycott on Russia. They said, we're not buying anything from Russia. We're not allowing Russians into our countries. We're going to isolate Russia, and we hope it collapses on its own. That was the economic strategy. The Western world also decided they were not going to fight against Russia. They were not going to actually use their own military, their own soldiers against Russia. They would help the Ukraine against Russia, and they would fight economically against Russia by boycotting the country. So um, the value of the Russian ruble went dropped like a stone right away. The Russian government raised interest rates in order to keep the ruble up. They raised interest rates by 10 basis points in a week, which is, you know, here we're talking a quarter of a point here and a quarter of a point there. They raised it by 10 full points in a week to show you how panicked they were that things were going to collapse. But they didn't collapse because Russia was able to sell all the stuff that they had. Instead of selling it to the West, they sold it at a discount to anybody who would be willing to buy it. And who doesn't like a discount? Who doesn't like a bargain? Lots of people love, need what Russia has, which is gas and oil, nickel, metals, minerals, uh, mostly those things, aluminum, 
So India, Pakistan, China, um, or the Bangladesh, or the main um, uh, buyers of uh, Russian fossil fuels at a discount. And then you had a whole group of people in the United Arab Emirates and in Turkey who acted as, and in Armenia, who acted as middlemen to import goods that Russia needs and then sell them to Russia. So in other words, if Russia can't buy a car, a Mercedes-Benz from Germany, well, the, the Turkish dealership or the Abu Dhabi dealership could buy the Mercedes and then send it to Russia and make their 10 or 15% profit. And that's what they've been doing. So if you ask how come Russia hasn't collapsed, it's because everything that they've done, it just costs, it's just a cost. They sell their goods for less and they buy their goods for more. But they still have, they still get, there's still plenty of Russia, of money in Russia. One of the results of this boycott was that oil prices shot up right away. Because if if Russia can't get their oil out to the rest of the world, there's the demand is the same, but the supply is less, that forces up the price. So Russia was able to benefit by starting this war. Russia was able to benefit by charging more for the goods that they had than they had before the war. So even though they had to sell at a discount, the amount, the amount that they're getting is still more than they were getting before the war started. And, and the volume of exports of fossil fuels, oil and gas, is more than it was before the war started. They're just selling it to different customers. That's all. Um, another big effect of this war is the food prices. So food prices have gone up because um, Ukraine was the world's, one of the world's largest exporters of wheat, one of the world's largest exporters of sunflower oil, and uh, a huge export of other farm products. Um, and their customers were in the Middle East, so their customers were in uh, Turkey, in uh, Egypt, in North Africa, even the rest of Africa, who now, because the Russians blockaded the Black Sea, the, the, the part of Odessa, let's say here, they can't send ships out across the Black Sea to go down the Bosphorus to go into the Mediterranean because the Russians put mines all over the place outside the harbors. So immediately the price of grain went up. Also because of you know different the global growing uh, conditions and things like that, and uh, immediately you know people felt it in the Middle East. That was the first place they felt it, where um, you know bread is there. Sometimes the only food they have to eat in these poor countries, and the price of bread just exploded because of this shortage of meat um, from the Ukraine and also Russia. I mean, Russia is a big wheat exporter. But you know, the war also caused them to have trouble shipping up their own meat. Um, and so, you know, this conflict had these two big effects on the world uh, economy, leading to some of the inflation that we are experiencing now, that the world is experiencing now. The food costs going up and the oil uh, and gas costs going up. 
Let's let's talk about gas for a second. So gas, of course, we mean natural gas. Europe was getting half of its natural gas from Russia. The natural gas got picked from far off in the middle of the country, dropping Ukraine, in pipelines, and going into Western Europe, uh, where it was, you know, bought and used to heat homes uh, and to power factories. The Russians also built a special pipeline from Russia across the Baltic Sea to get away from here, right under the water and ending up in Germany, the Nord Stream project, Nord Stream 1 and 2. Somehow or other, those, those pipelines got blown up. We still don't know today who blew them up. Could it be Russia themselves who blew them up? Or could it have been the Ukrainians who blew them up? There's no definitive answer. Probably the Russians did it uh, in order to tell Europe, look, you need us more than we need you. Our gas we can sell, again, to um, Central Asia. Uh, we can sell it to Turkey. Uh, and then the Turks can do whatever they want with it. But you're not getting gas from us. And uh, there was a fear that Western Europe was going to freeze last winter. Fortunately, it was a mild winter, number one. And then other countries producing gas, like Norway or, or Great Britain or Holland, decided to up their gas production. The United States increased their exports of liquefied natural gas. Algeria did the same thing. Qatar did the same thing. And lo and behold, uh, Europe was able to get through last winter okay. Now, winter is coming up this time. We don't know if it's going to be a colder winter or what's going to happen, but it's, uh, it's, it, it, it could be a factor this time of winter. Um, so, uh, once uh, the um, Russians were stopped, uh, the um, uh, momentum then came to the Ukrainians. And everybody was saying, okay, we're giving the Ukrainians all this weaponry, we're giving them all this money, we expect them to go keep the Russians out. But the Russians had a whole year to prepare their defenses, to put in lines, to put in barbed wire, to put in all kinds of defenses against the Ukrainians, who still don't have modern airplanes, uh, you know, to uh, most advanced ones. The Ukrainians started an, started an offense over here. So the Russians had captured, and here the Russians, you know, captured this piece of territory over here. And the Ukrainians are trying to get through like this. But, you know, the, the, the Russians are a lot better defenders than they are attackers. So the Ukrainians have barely managed to make any headway this whole summer. There's supposed to be a spring offensive, and it just, you know, they captured a tiny little bit of territory, and that's about it. And once once fall comes, the rains come, and then it gets all muddy, and then you can't really, you know, advance very far uh, because of the mud. So that's the situation. I mean, uh, the world has condemned the uh, invasion. Russia has found what friends it has. Namely, China and North Korea and Iran. 
So Iran, China, and North Korea are the only countries in Venezuela that are solidly backing Russia. Uh, a lot of countries say we want to stay neutral. We don't want to take sides because we need both countries. Turkey is sort of a neutral country. And you know what the other neutral country is? Take a guess. Israel, right. Because Israel says, well, you know, we know what the, what the Russians did on one hand, but on the other hand, um, we have to think that we need the Russians to allow us to take action in Syria as much as we want. The Russians have an air base there, the Russians have a navy base there. And if Israel wants to attack the Hezbollah in Syria, Israel usually notifies Russia to say we're going to do an attack. And Russia says, okay, we're going to stay out of the way. So that's one thing. And Russia still has a Jewish community of 100,000 people who, you know, in a certain sense are hostages um, by Russia in case Israel would become too friendly to the Ukrainians. So Israel has tried to stay um, neutral, but the most important thing Israel didn't do was to supply the Iron Dome system to the Ukrainians. The Iron Dome shoots down missiles. It's, it's a phenomenal invention that the Israelis came up with. Expensive, very expensive. But they are able to shoot down any missile that comes over. And as you know, the Russians have sent thousands and thousands of missiles into the Ukraine at civil uh, targets, hospitals, schools, uh, everything else. And the Ukrainians have begged Israel to please send us the Iron Dome because we can shoot down these missiles. One of the problems is that one Iron Dome projectile costs $50,000, and the Russians are sending thousands of these missiles over. So who has the money to pay for all this? Nobody. And um, you know, Israel just says, look, uh, you know, we, we just don't want to um, commit ourselves to providing the Iron Dome system because, A, we need it ourselves. We need those missiles ourselves to defend ourselves. And, B, we don't want the technology of this missile system to fall into the wrong hands, number two, which they could. Um, one uh, another interesting fact that happened this past week is that the Ukrainians replaced not only the Ministry of Defense, Minister of Defense, but all their top uh, all their top uh, military official groups just kicked out this week by the Ukraine because they're advanced stall. They accuse they, they accuse all these defense officials of being incompetent and corrupt. Which they probably are. And so they changed it. The new minister of defense in Ukraine is a Muslim. He is a Crimean Tatar. So he's from Crimea. And they made him as a minister of defense. It's a way of saying to Russia, we didn't forget about Crimea. You know, one of the solutions of this war is Russia goes back to where they were before, the international boundary. But Russia gets to keep Crimea because Crimea was only part of Ukraine for, um, you know, uh, 50 years. And all the people living in Crimea are Russian-speaking. I mean, 
I personally visited the Crimea. It was uh, maybe eight, seven, eight years ago. And we went around quite far, quite a lot of places, but it all up uh, the famous site of the uh, the conference in uh, 1943 between Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill. And um, all the people there said, we are Russians, we speak Russian, we feel like Russians, but we saw no Ukrainian flags the whole time we were there except one on some government building. They, they, so, so that's what they said. They said, we are Russians. Here's the but. The but was, we appreciate the Ukraine as a democracy and a free country. Yes, we know that Putin's Russia is not. And that was what they said. So, you know, for better or for worse, they said, well, you know, we're looking on the bright side that we're in the Ukraine, but if we were in Russia, we would be better off. The standard of living in Russia is higher than the Ukraine. Um, and uh, so if a, a genuine vote was taken in Crimea, they probably would vote to stay with Russia. That's, you know, they did have these fake referendums when Russia took over these territories, but they were fake. But in a real referendum, Crimea would probably want to stay with Russia. Let's see what we got here. Um, okay, so now, I'm going to just take a look at my notes because I made four pages there. See if I forgot anything. In the meantime, think of questions and comments that you might have. Let's see. Yeah, there were there were uh, demonstrations in, in Ukraine called Maidan. It was part of the color revolution in the beginning in the 2000s. There were these democratic revolutions that took place in the ex-Soviet Union. One was in Georgia, one was in the Ukraine, and the big fear of Putin was that this sort of real democracy would wish the desire for real democracy would move into Russia itself. And that's probably one of his other major motivations. He didn't want the, the experience of real democracy in the Ukraine and in Georgia to infect the fake democracy that he established in Russia. So, you know, get rid of the Ukraine and you get rid of a real democracy that could influence the Russian people. Well, that was it's another basically. Um, and and the other effect was that that so remember I said that a third of, of, of eastern Ukraine is Russian speaking. Russia took over about half of it, but the other half is still part of the Ukraine. The Russian speaking people in the Ukraine were still there, became pro-Ukrainian because the invasion was so brutal and the um, just the idea of getting rid of the Ukraine independence was so wrong that these Ukrainian, these Russian-speaking Ukrainians for the most part side with the Ukraine and even have started speaking Ukrainian for the first time in their lives. So it's clear that this wasn't 
an idea of a revolution, uh, of an invasion, just to so-called protect the Russian speakers. That was his motivation. So he managed to turn the Russian speakers against him, who did that. He managed to turn the Ukraine completely against Russia, which in a large part of it used to be pro-Russia. He managed to get NATO to expand to Finland and Sweden, the two countries that were neutral before, now have become pro-NATO and joined NATO. He's managed to unite the whole Western world, almost, almost all of Western Europe against him, whereas before he had friends all over the place. Um, maybe Orban in Hungary is his only kind of buddy now. Um, and and uh, not even, you know, the, the Orthodox countries like Bulgaria and Serbia and Romania, even those countries are against Russia today for, for invading Ukraine. So he really, he really didn't create a diplomatic win. He didn't create a military win. He managed to create fear in his country, to send his country back to the old days of the fear of Stalin, that people would be coming on the street and just arresting people for no good reason. Um, you know, everything that he touched, in other words, turned bad. And, and, and all those people were killed, which, you know, the, at first he, they, they published statistics that said 5,000 people were killed in that war. But everybody knows if you just add up the number of funerals taking place, that they were in the tens of thousands, not 5,000. Yeah, you know, uh, the other thing that happened is the Russian blow is down. I don't know if I'm supposed to speak to the real talk or three people. Mm -hmm. Does anybody know? Three. Three, oh, okay. Just finished. The same, the Russian blew up a dam on the Dnieper River, which caused um, the whole the whole lake that was behind it to, 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 you know, to flood. Um, of all crazy things, that the Dnieper River was one through a canal, that lake that was behind the dam supplied the Crimea with water. So now the Crimea has no water coming from where it used to come from, and they have to get it, I think, directly from Russia uh, in this direction. The other thing is on the front line over here, there's this big nuclear power plant, the biggest one in all of the Ukraine. And it's run, it's, it's, it was taken over by Russia, but it's really close to where the front line is. And people are afraid that if something happens, this whole plant can go up. And, you know, this would be another huge radiation disaster, just like Chernobyl. Chernobyl is on the border between uh, Ukraine and Belarus, right there. And, you know, there's still a large territory which is uninhabited because. Of that nuclear plant that blew up. This one is bigger than that one. So if this one goes, it's, it's going to be really bad. Any um, questions, last comments, questions? Oh, I just have to say one more thing. Sorry about that. Oh, thank God it's not my fault. Um, 
With Russia so involved in this war, they've taken away their attention from other places that were busy before. One of which was the mediation between Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, whereby the Russians were standing as mediators between those two sides who had already fought two wars. Today, yeah. a third war is broken up. A real one is broken up today between Azerbaijan and Armenia because the Russians are not there to keep the price. And um, it, uh, the aim of Azerbaijan is to take over completely an Armenian enclave, which Stalin created. Uh, remember, I was saying this before, he loved putting these in the Nordics and other places. So he created an Armenian enclave inside of Azerbaijan, inhabited by Armenian-speaking people. But that place was an autonomous republic of Azerbaijan. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Armenia took over that republic. A few years later, Azerbaijan fought a war and took some of it back. And the Russians agreed to be mediators and peacekeepers over there. Uh, today, a war broke out again, probably because Russia is not around to do anything. And the aim of Azerbaijan is to take over that full area uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh, which, like I said, which was um, uh, territorially part of Azerbaijan, but administratively So the war broke out today, and uh, see what happens. So look, I want to thank you all. I hope I didn't keep you too late. I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't sure I don't know why. Maybe I have to go to three printing. Anyway, um, so this is just a sort of a brush up on this war, which we have no idea how it's going to end. Because the Zelensky said that it will end when Russia retreats from all its territory, and Russia is not retreating. And so this war is predicted to go on for years and years and years. And in Biden's speech today, and Biden, he said today, he said, look, if we abandon the Ukraine, if we abandon them, they, can, they can't resist without Russia. If we abandon them, Russia moves right onto the borders of more places. And Russia can decide to take over those places. And then, you know, so then, then of course, they would be confronting all of NATO because Ukraine is not in NATO. Do the Americans have an iron dome? The Americans have something like the iron dome, but it isn't the iron dome. Um, the iron dome actually was made, if I'm not mistaken, by the Raytheon company. Uh, they were the ones who manufactured the iron dome systems of the Israelis, but the Israelis had the the, um, the software that ran these, these, these rockets. Americans have something similar. They're, they're giving them. They are giving them. There's a limited amount of these things compared to how many rockets they have. A rocket, even even a computer-guided rocket, costs a couple of thousand dollars. One of these anti-rockets, like I said, they're about fifty thousand. So you know, it's hard to out the way around the old number. Someone else?
that is that is a half a half truth. So here's here's what it is. The United States gives Israel four billion dollars a year. Israel, I think, was the largest or second largest single recipient of U.S. foreign aid. Israel is a middle class country. They don't need U.S. money. All of the money that Israel gets, all that four billion, must be spent on armaments made in the U.S. So it's a kind of a make-work project for the U.S. to say, we're going to give Israel the money, but they have to spend it on our material that we manufacture and hold. So Israel, do they need it? Yes and no. You know, can they manage without it? They certainly can't, because the money is not going into the pockets of the Israelis, that's for sure. It's just going to provide Israel with more weapons, um, which they uh, frankly need at certain times. At other times, they don't need it. But Israel is a whole subject on its own, which I certainly will speak about, but not today. Uh, so thank you all very much, and uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good if you're fasting, have an easy fast, and um, we'll see you next Tuesday.